Fusapod, conversations about creativity, community, and the things that matter. It's so important to learn and understand the context within which you're entering. So for me as a public health person, coming into communities, I can read the statistics, I can look at the reports, I can look at the maps and see where disproportionate burdens of disease are. But that does not give me the context of people's lived experiences in these communities. So my first literally couple months on faculty here in Boston are going to be spent learning the community. White women, black men. What's driving the difference in life expectancy between these two groups? Native American youth are dying at higher rates of suicide compared to the general population. Why? And how can storytelling, activism, and empowerment make a real impact on these issues? Welcome to Fusapod. I'm Lee Shan Huang. In this episode, David Colby Reed and I sit down with Ndidi Amuta to learn about her work around health disparities and try to understand the systems that lead to such stark differences in health outcomes between different populations across the United States. Ndidi Amuta is a professor at Tufts University in the School of Medicine with a focus on health equities and health disparities. She's also a scholar, activist, and published researcher with a long-standing commitment to public health. Here's Ndidi. Thank you so much for joining us today, Didi. Can you tell us more about your work with health equity and disparities? What does that mean for our general audience? So health equity and health disparities is um, the discipline of public health that looks at differences in health outcomes as experienced by different groups of people. So why is it that the life expectancy is different for white women versus black men? Why is it that we see the rates of HIV Um, being disproportionately burdened in communities of color? Why is it that we see Native American youth dying from higher rates of suicide and diabetes? So the the discourse around health equity and health disparities really focuses on examining and unpacking these inequities and outcomes as experienced by different groups of vulnerable populations. So these are really important questions to be asking as a society, as a health system. And when you study these questions, like what what are some of the causes of uh, maybe one of these questions that you're asking? The root causes, there's many um, things that intersect to exacerbate health disparities and exacerbate these differences that we see. But for me, it all stems back to structural and systemic racism and discrimination in the accessing and the provision of health care services for communities of color. And so I think that looking at policy, looking at the historical context of inequity really helps us to frame current conversation, looking at things such as residential segregation and redlining and why certain communities were relegated to certain parts of cities with poor schools and poor infrastructure and more crime and what that means for health outcomes of people. So for us to have a conversation in 2017, we need to look back historically at what laid the foundation for the outcomes and the margins that we see. And this translates literally to life or death for populations. So you have to look at the historical context to gain the understanding of how to address it today. I'm I'm curious, like, how did you first get into this line of work? I mean, and when I say this line, we can treat that in a few different ways. Public health 
for public health and health equity in particular, and then HIV AIDS in particular? You know, like how how did your like these concentric circles of specialization come to be for you? I think for me, I've I've always been a very curious person, a very curious child. I've always had like a penchant for learning and asking why? Why is this like this? Why is this happening? And so I grew up in, um, my parents are Nigerian, and we grew up in uh, Trenton, New Jersey, and I just experienced inequities and going to Trent Public Schools, um, being like a smart kid, being on a debate team, we would go to different schools, and I would see, wow, they have nice books, and they have computers, and the facilities are much more updated, and we're here, you know, in this rundown, dilapidated building with asbestos, and I said, why is that? These are kids just like me. They're 14, 15 years old just like me. So just by growing up in the community and the context that I grew up and seeing what I saw, the drug dealing and the crime and just understanding that there are resources in these communities, there are people that are intelligent and are going to college and are making a difference, but understanding very clearly that just 15 minutes up the street in Princeton is completely different. And so why is that? Why is the capital city of New Jersey in the state that it's in when 15 minutes up the street, we see longer life expectancies, we see better outcomes, we see more income, we see higher rates of education and graduation. So I didn't know what the field of inequities and health disparities was. I just was always a curious kid and I always asked why. And so I developed the love and the curiosity just from what I saw in my everyday life. I think that that's a really evocative answer that like as a kid, you're watching and you're observing and wondering why. Did anyone ever try to explain? <laughs> because, you know, like, I don't know if that can be explained to a child in a way. Yeah. That, yeah. What does that look like? Like, how does that translate? I think for me, um, my mom was just always very transparent and honest with us and would say, you know what? Um, there's a lot of things that's happening that's not right, that's systemic, that is wrong. But the key to changing it is education. So she always ended our conversations and my rants about this is not right and this is, you know, why is this happening? And and she would always bring it back to something positive, education, mobilization, community advocacy, speaking up for yourself. She was the parent that was going to the Board of Education. She was the parent at PTA meetings. She was the parent at the town halls holding the mayor accountable. So I learned advocacy and I learned how to be a change agent through her. So that was her way of like explaining like even though these systems are in place to oppress and depress communities, we have a voice. We have rights. And so she was awesome because my mom, um, she is awesome and she just really set the stage for us to just do anything we wanted to do and just really question the system. So that's kind of her way of addressing that for us. Well, that sounds like an education, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but like an education to to explain, but an education also to inspire or to to create like some kind of like call, you know, like now this is what we have to do. Exactly, that's exactly how she brought us up. I did want to address your your point around HIV and how I how I came to be um, in love with that, and that was a very similar perspective. So when I was an undergrad, I went to Rutgers University. I majored in public health, and I also majored in African studies. And one of my internships in undergrad was at the New Jersey Women in AIDS Network, and I worked directly with 
HIV-positive, infected, and affected women. And I was just blown away by their stories and the disparities that they experienced in the healthcare system and the medication regimens that they were on and just all the things that they had to go through just to take care of themselves. And we know that women are also mothers and wives and sisters, and they play all these multiple competing roles. So how do we get women to focus on themselves, to take their medication so that they can live their best and fullest life while also trying to put the food on the table, trying to get the bills paid, trying to take care of the kids? So my love for HIV just came from my love for people and hearing people's stories and wanting to make a difference and wanting to um, intercede, if you will, at some of these barriers that just seem so archaic and ridiculous to me around transportation and child care that are literally making all the difference if a woman makes it to her appointment, if she gets the medication that she needs. So that's how I started out in the field of HIV. I think that's really, really interesting. Again, like it's observing the real, the hassles and the, the dependencies, I suppose, in maintaining a treatment regimen for a chronic disease amid all of these other factors. The big question here is that, that I have is, what, what are the bounds of public health when you're looking at issues of equity? Because you, you mentioned, you know, these are affected by redlining and, and housing segregation. They're affected by the position of housing projects next to major highways with their emissions. They are influenced by transportation connectivity and, you know, health insurance through workplaces and so on. I mean, these are all like massively intersectional kinds of issues. So what are the bounds of uh, public health in a space like this as a discipline? And do you feel that like you, do you go beyond what the, the standard practice of public health is or, or, or what? I'm just curious like how you see your work given the like the thicket of issues that are in, inter, entangled here. Yeah, I think that's what is amazing about public health, but also constricting. So for me, I see public health as having no bounds, and I think that the future of public health will have less bounds. And so public health has traditionally functioned in a silo of population-level prevention of illness. That's our motto. We focus on education and preventing illness at the population level, but we know all these things intersect with health. So everything you outline is very, very, very much at the forefront of public health issues. So I'm really happy to see organizations like the American Public Health Association take on violence as a public health issue. I'm happy to see us do work with housing and education and how these things, the prison industrial complex, what does that mean for public health? Um, education and, and quality schools for children, what does that mean for public health? So I think the future of public health will be less siloed and more interdisciplinary. There's a lot of um, research that's coming out from, like, think tanks and foundations around the need to do more collaborative work with our partners in housing and education and policing um, and injury. And so I think, you know, as a perpetual optimist, I have to look at the glass of public health as always being half full. I have to know, I have to think that the field is growing and that we're just at the precipice of more opportunities, more intersections. But it is, I, I don't think that for us to be true public health professionals, we should have bounds. I am happy to do work with a nutritionist, an engineer, the director of housing, someone with an architectural background, because I understand this still relates back to prevention of illness. So 
I mm-hmm. like to think that other people share that sentiment, and from the current state of affairs and what I'm seeing in the literature and um, our upcoming public health meeting, things of that nature, I think that we are increasingly moving towards more intersectional work because people are dying. And if you're only addressing health without looking at housing or nutrition or education or employment, you're missing the mark. So I think the future holds some really promising opportunities for public health. Another question that I have, given the focus that you have on health equity and HIV AIDS, but how do you right. talk to like policymakers or funders who get squeamish at the idea of looking at racial inequities? So I, I think you're absolutely right. Squeamish is a really good word, and um, I pride myself on making people uncomfortable. I think to affect <laughs> change, you have to make people uncomfortable. So I have always been the rabble-rouser. I'm the one that's on Capitol Hill. I'm the one that's at the state legislature with women. I think there's nothing more powerful than hearing a testimony or hearing the lived experience of someone in this situation, someone that's HIV positive, someone that's struggling to manage their life, someone that is looking at their health care system that is failing them and their families on a daily basis. And so I think it's important that advocacy is at the forefront of these conversations and really holding these foundations and holding policymakers accountable. These elected officials work for us. I tell women that all the time. And I have a curriculum called Project Thanks that I developed with a colleague And essentially, we walk women through advocacy. You have the right to request a meeting with your city councilman, your elected official. They work for us. We are the ones that voted for them and put them in office. Here's their phone number. Here's their email. We do letter writing campaigns. Like, I really am about the business of empowering women. And you just see the light bulbs go on, and they're like, wow. And there's so much strength in their experiences. There's so much beauty in their stories that it needs to be heard. And I have never seen this go wrong. I've always seen it have a great impact, whether it was getting someone to vote for a particular bill or whether it was getting funding restored in a particular setting. But advocacy, community-based advocacy, has to be at the forefront of this conversation. And if funders and if legislatures are not uncomfortable, then we have not done enough advocacy. We have not pushed the envelope enough. They should be uncomfortable. They should be squeamish. And that squeamishness ideally translates to change in policy. If you know that your congressperson or your elected official has not voted in support of additional funding or they were they voted in support of cuts, you hold them accountable. They cannot come into that community and do photo ops and um, do their programming and do their economic development. You disrupt and interrupt those systems. So that's ultimately where we're trying to get with um, – the curriculum, which is called Project Thanks, Turning HIV-AIDS into New Knowledge for Sisters. So, yes, it's focused Mm -hmm. on the management of chronic illness, such as diabetes, hypertension, HIV, um, but it's also an empowerment and advocacy curriculum where women are really trained to be ambassadors of their health. And I think it's important for women and for people in general to mobilize, particularly in the current climate that we're in, um, I think it's so much more pressing and so much more critically important and urgent 
we don't even have the luxury of sitting on the sidelines anymore because it literally is translating or has the potential to translate to really, really egregious cuts and really, really huge damages to people's lives and funding and insurance and all the other on-toward effects. So I think that action has to start at the community level. The community has to rally and protect itself. And um, I'm really big into community advocacy and training members of community and working within communities for really to get people to understand the power that they have. There's power in the vote. There's power in the funding. There's power in the dollar. There's power in the media. And how do you leverage and mobilize those things that nobody wants to get that tweet or that press release sent out saying that this particular official did not support XYZ funding and as a result money is being cut for necessary services. So I think um, in this chapter of my life and my academic career, I really want to focus more on community-based research and community-engaged research where um, there's resources to mobilize communities to really attack and interrupt these systems um, in a way that's sustainable and in a way that um, gets that squeamishness to a place of action. Um, and so people are kind of forced into doing the right thing, if you will. That's the ultimate goal. So prior to Boston, I was in New Jersey, and I worked in um, Patterson, which is a very high-need area, um, tremendous rates of uh, poverty, crime, really high rates of HIV, infant mortality, all these health disparity indicators. And that's where I was able to um, do Project Thanks along with my colleague, Mina. And so this uh, community-based organization that we worked in worked with women who are all HIV positive, are all um, current substance users, and all have a chronic illness, such as diabetes, hypertension, cancer, high blood pressure, something of that nature. So it was really interesting to see um, how we were able to do the advocacy piece. So for one of our sessions, we had the women write letters, and then we actually um, delivered the letters to the um, elected officials of City Hall, and then they responded with a proclamation around our project. And so we were able to read the proclamation at our graduation, and we had the um, elected officials come out, and we were able to have a really frank discussion about funding and about um, accessing services. And we trained the women essentially to say, okay, when you get in there, this is how you ask the questions, and this is what you say. And it was just a really beautiful process coming from an academic background, but really having a love for the community to see these beautiful women who are so smart and so resilient and so strategic um, using their window of opportunity to get additional funding for the organization, to get this proclamation, and to also really build relationships with their elected officials. So that was really, really cool to see. Um, and we want to expand that project. Um, there's also cities that have expressed an interest, such as Newark and Camden, New Jersey. Um, now that I'm here in Boston, definitely um, expanding it to communities here, Roxbury, Mattapan, Dorchester, um, communities of color here. And so I think advocacy um, and really the process of building relationships and building bridges with elected officials is the first step in changing policy. They get to put a face with a name. They get to hear the lived experiences. They get to see people. It's not just something on a piece of paper. This is someone's life with a story. This is someone's mother or granddaughter or whatever the case is. 
And so I think that human peace um, is really, really powerful. And I've also done work in Maryland, taking women to Annapolis and the State House and having women um, testify around funding for um, family planning and um, reproductive services. So I think that human peace really makes all the difference in the work that I've done so far. Lishan and I are teaching a class this semester um, uh, called Designing for Citizenship. But one of the units that we were discussing and one of the themes here is that of borders and where borders seem to be the site of where interesting things happen. So you see crossover between different communities and you get the thing that causes the cleavage between one side of a border and another is thrown into starker relief um, by, by these boundary crossers. And it sounds like that's one of the roles that you have here, you know, being right. able to understand with a deep empathy the patient and community concerns and right. also with like deep experience and training like be fluent in the other discourses necessary to influence uh these policies you know so that that again like in this border crossing your ability to maybe code switch and be you know uh be on both sides is is one of the things that helps with your practice now Absolutely. No, code switching and fluency um, are imperative. And so when I was doing my, um, I did a postdoctoral fellowship in Baltimore that was funded by Kellogg Foundation, and for two years it was focused on health disparities and community-based research. So I'm fresh out of my Ph.D. Um, I'm a black woman, but I'm not from Baltimore, so there's that, you know, the differences in the culture and the mm -hmm. accent or whatever. And so literally my whole first year of my fellowship, I – assimilated into the community. I volunteered at health clinics. I worked with different women. I worked with different nonprofits. And it wasn't until somebody from my, um, I think my mentor, someone used um, my name, doctor. And so we, I think I was like babysitting some women's kids and they were doing some type of after school program. And she was like, oh, Dr. Muka. And they were like, Doctor, I mean, and so it wasn't that I was trying to be misleading, but I knew that if I led with that, I may not be able to get in. Like, I wanted people to see mm -hmm. Didi for who Didi is, you know. I get it. I am also from similar communities. And so, you know, by that time it was all good, but I just remember feeling very like I had to just get in and really get the trust of women. I think it's so important that when you're doing this kind of work, people need to trust you. People need to know that you have integrity, you have ethics, and that you're not here to take their data, take their information, and write a grant and get, you know, a big prize at the end or get your work published in a really good academic journal, but that you really are committed to the community. And so it was really, really interesting um, to spend literally a whole year um, kind of not undercover, if you will, but just not leading with, with doctor and not, you know, just being like a regular person in the community. And so that um, really helped me when I did eventually have to say, okay, guys, look, I guess I'm a doctor. I am collecting data. I am doing research. But the data and the research was informed and it was shaped by what the women wanted. I said, okay, so here's what I think are some next steps um, regarding, I think at the time we were working on like family planning and birth spacing. What are your thoughts? How does this resonate with you? Like, what would be sustainable here in Baltimore? What do you need? And so the whole project was shaped by the community. 
Um, and I learned a lot. I think that's the best education I ever got was at the community level. And so, yeah, you do need to be fluent and um, be able to be multilingual and not like in a sense of a language, but in a sense of a culture and a sense of the nuances and how people move and how people nonverbal communication, what are the cues, who are the gatekeepers, how does this community act, how do they respond to each other, um, and what are, what's the normative behavior. And so it's interesting. Um, I, I, I kind of probably was like a cultural anthropologist in my former life because I just love people and I love studying people and talking to people and working with people. And I feel like to really impact all these huge issues that we grapple with in public health, childhood obesity, HIV, um, gun violence as a public health issue, just the really big things that we're trying to address in the United States. Now, internationally, it's a whole other set of circumstances, but domestically, these are kind of like the big heart disease, the big issues that we're focusing on. You have to go to the community. You have to start at that level. So, yeah, I think code switching is, is a really good way to describe it because I'm comfortable in both settings, but I do understand the need to be a bridge as well. So, you know, I think people tend to, when feeling insecure, tend to lead with appeals to authority. Trust me because I'm a professional. And, you know, you can state the type of professional credential or qualification, you know, fill in the blank. But it's a way of establishing authority and getting more, uh, you know, participation um, or perhaps compliance is a better word. Because I think what you've described is a more genuine participation that's a product of trust. And you mentioned this uh, dynamic of, like, not wanting to be this researcher who's there taking data from this community in order to advance her career. I mean, what other lessons besides, you know, not leading with this appeal to authority, (laughs) you know, like what other lessons besides that could you offer for like this kind of, I guess, non-extractive data collection? Because that's, that's the frame that I'm using and correct me if I'm wrong, actually, (laughs) please for for that frame, but yeah. No, what you're describing is, is is what we would call like an ethnographic method of data collection, right? So mm-hmm. essentially, um, I think for me, and I just I just gave a lecture two weeks ago to 170 medical residents here in Boston, first-year medical students. You know, they're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to save the world. And my mm-hmm. lecture was on um, cultural humility and the role of providers, um, whether it's public health professionals or medical providers or whoever, being culturally humble. And I talked about how it's so important to learn and understand the context within which you're entering. So for me as a public health person coming into communities, I can read the statistics, I can look at the reports, I can look at the maps and see where disproportionate burdens of disease are. But that does not give me the context of people's lived experiences in these communities. So my first literally couple months on faculty are here in Boston are going to be spent learning the community. Um, and that was really important to me, and, and I'm so happy that I have a chair that shares the vision and is not like, no, you're going to be chained to this desk and writing grants and teaching students, and which I will do as well. But for me, <laughs> it's really- 
I mean, I I can't kind of get around those things, but it was important (laughs) with this community-based focus. And so what I think for me, being culturally humble is another lesson that I would want to impart to people. You have to be culturally humble, and you have to be open, open your mind and open, just be a human being. You know, that's just like a very simplified version, but just be a human being. If you go into communities that you're not used to working with or you're learning the lay of the land and someone offers you something, eat it, take it, taste it, ask what it is. Like, you know what I mean? Just be open to different experiences and all the context will start to come together. It may not even, you may not even think it's something relevant or something that's important, but people want to be heard and particularly working in communities that have been oppressed and suppressed and depressed, they want to be heard. People want to be heard. People want to be valued, and they want to be seen as full, beautiful human beings that they are. And so I think the lesson is cultural humility um, as opposed to cultural competence is really how I live mm-hmm. my life and how I manage my career and the types of work that and the work that I do and the types of projects that I take on. I'm very intentional about being culturally humble. So we've been here for a couple of weeks. We're checking out some different churches and, you know, eating some different restaurants and just getting a lay, a sense of where we are before I can even talk about, okay, here's a three-year plan for data collection and we're going to have a sample of X and we're going to have a longitudinal analysis. Like, no, you have to be culturally humble so people allow you into their world and then it becomes reciprocal. And the beauty of if, of cultural humility is that I'm also benefiting. I'm also growing as a person, as a researcher, as a health disparities professional, if you will. Like, I also grow from these experiences, and I channel that um, into my teaching, into my mentoring, into the grants that I write, into the policy that I try to impact. So it's not a one-way street by any stretch. I'm not coming in with my white cape and saving community, right? I, right? Because sometimes people have a propensity to think like that. Oh, this community was so, you know, desolate, and now I'm here with my five-year grant, and it's going to be amazing. Yeah, you're going to make some changes in five years, but are you going to change the heart of the community? Maybe, maybe not. And so I think for me, being culturally humble is what I would leave people with and the importance of understanding context and um, historically how people got to be where they are. Is there something that you'd like to, is there something um, about your academic yeah, work? Yeah, I just you'd wanted lo- to talk like sure. a little bit about um, like my future work and like what I hope to do here in Boston. Oh, please. So there's two things that I want to work on now that I'm here in Boston. One of them is called um, Project Dash, which is Divas Against the Spread of HIV AIDS. And I really want to develop um, an intervention for HIV-positive women and their adolescent daughters. So we know that um, there's a lot of stigma around HIV, and from a lot of the preliminary work I've done so far, I interviewed um, 15 women with HIV, and then I did a survey with another 53 of them to really look at their knowledge, attitudes, and beliefs around their diagnosis and what does that mean for their families and the role that women play. And I also interviewed their daughters and talked to their daughters around their mom's status. What was so interesting to me is that the daughters knew that their moms were positive, but they didn't really talk about HIV. But if you look at the demographic data of the daughters as far as sexual risk behavior, um, 
the economic, socioeconomic backgrounds, the daughters are very much on the same risk pathways, if you will, as their mom. So where's the point of intervention? Where Hmm. is the opportunity to interrupt this path that the daughters are on? So Project Dash really kind of grew out of my love for work with moms and daughters around HIV prevention. I just remember my mom had really frank conversations with me around, um, you know, the birds and the bees and things like that. And I just really want to capitalize on mothers and daughters. I think it's such a beautiful bond. And in the literature, we don't see a lot around African-American mothers and daughters. But we know that there's a pivotal um, that bond is very pivotal in delaying sexual initiation and reducing mm-hmm. unsafe behaviors in the daughters, but we don't see that kind of dyadic, uh, the dyad of the mother and daughter and African-American families really highlighted in the public health and family science and human development literature. So I really want to develop an intervention that recruits and trains both moms and daughters um, to be ambassadors of their health. And so also getting at some of the mental health um, in moms and looking at depression and stigma and really trying to unpack and address um, the shame and the guilt that a lot of women have expressed around HIV. So that's really, like, exciting. And I also want to do work around infant mortality and preterm birth. Um, Boston is very uh, racially segregated, and so I'm interested in looking at the role of the community in addressing um, maternal and child health outcomes. So how do we intersect um, mothers, which are nestled in their um, families, which are also nested in communities? So how do we look at the mom not just as an individual, but also as someone that is intersecting in all these other layers? So I'm thinking about doing some neighborhood-level work here, looking at um disadvantage and crime and policing and what does that mean for women um, around birth outcomes. So those are like two of the projects that I want to get off the ground here. Oh, do you mind if I just interject for a sec? Because Lishan was drawing this connection earlier and I want to call it out again. But again, it's about context. You know, like, and it's funny because one of the things that we talk about at FUSA a lot is this idea of um, community-centered design so that we're not looking just at the individual as this atomistic unit uh, of analysis, you know, but like, but rather looking at, you know, households and families and communities. And so there are some phenomena that you could observe at that higher order uh, level that you don't see as well. Like you, you miss the the forest for the trees when you look at the individual too much on some of these things. And I think public health is, is a great example of it. And I, you know, like, I'd be very interested to see the results of some of this work that you're doing with mothers and daughters, because that's a crucial context that, um, you, you know, if you're saying is under-examined, you know, I, yeah, that, it's very interesting to me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we don't see a lot of it in the literature, and I think it's such a missed opportunity. Like, these moms just really want the best for their children, and the daughters are – it's just interesting to talk to people about HIV. HIV is the elephant in the room in a lot of situations, and we see that the moms and the daughters are both wanting to change or wanting to have an impact in each other's lives, but they haven't, they don't really know how to address it. So that one is really, really focusing on the intersection of the missed opportunity. And then the final 
or for now, knowing me, the final project that's on my media horizon. I'm really <laughs> interested in um, the reproductive care and access to care that women that are incarcerated receive. So I'm trying to build relationships with people that either work in prisons or have connections to prisons um, and jails and really examining the quality of a woman is detained and she's pregnant or if a woman is HIV positive or if a woman is um, breastfeeding, what does that look like for women that are incarcerated? So it's interesting um, because we know that there's a lot, uh, we see increasing numbers of women that are having longer sentences and women that are incarcerated um, for drug-related offenses or whatever it is. But I'm really curious to, and not like the the jails and the prisons are going to say, oh, yeah, researcher, come in here with open arms and tell us everything we're doing wrong. So that project will be interesting to see how I'm able to shape it, but I am starting to do some formative work around um, reproductive health for women that are incarcerated. Well, in the class, one of the units that we're planning on discussing at some uh, later on in the semester is you know, the relationship between the state and the individual, and especially people who are under state supervision. You know, mm-hmm. how does this influence their ability to be citizens and practice citizenship, you know, during and after periods of incarceration? And, you know, especially like within black communities, you have so many uh, people being, you know, who are surveilled and under state supervision, you know, like this question about like how your rights as a citizen interact with that supervision are pretty pronounced. You know, there was one other thing. Is there someone's work that fascinates, flummoxes, or frustrates you, you know, in, in this field around health equity? I mean, are there, are there people who've got, like, really interesting insights or really uh, telling blind spots, you know, that, that, um, that, that help you think about your work? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Yes, absolutely. So my um, public health heroes, if you will, um, I have to give kudos to Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones. She is the immediate past president of the American Public Health Association, and she just is such an amazing champion of anti-racism, discrimination, just really calling things out and using her power for good. And she's just brilliant and just gives a really, really riveting Um, talk around racism, but just breaks it down in a way that's really digestible, because I think sometimes we miss the opportunities to make change because people just can't understand what we're saying at a very fundamental level. So she gives these Mm -hmm. really nice allegories on race and racism. Um, She has a great TED Talk on it, and so she's one of my sheroes. And then also um, in the academic space, uh, Felita Mask Jackson, she does a lot on stress and racism, um, the physiologic response to Um, stress and racism and what that means for birth outcomes for women. So she's been doing some amazing work. I'm actually on a panel with her at our upcoming um, American Public Health Association meeting. I'm so excited. Um, And there's a lot of good people, (laughs) Dr. Rajaya Hogan. There's a lot of champions, um, particularly in Moms Rising, um, Monifa Bandele. She's done some great work around community organizing for women of color, um, uh, the Black Women's Health Imperative. So you know, I love um, being able to look to organizations and people that are doing great work, and it just keeps me motivated. It keeps me sharp, and, you know, I am not above calling and emailing, and people are really open to collaboration, so that's been really cool to see that people that you're like, wow, they're so big and amazing. No, they're accessible, which is nice. Yeah. So, 
yeah, <laughs> behind the idol is someone on exactly. the other end of that inbox. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like they respond and they get it and they want to mentor, um, you know, people that are kind of coming up and it's, it's cool. So those are some of the people that I can definitely give kudos to um, for their work. I think I'll be saying in future that uh, you've inspired me on this call as well, and I'll speak for Lee Sean to say him too, because, you know, like the, the focus that you, and, and the real just consideration that you've brought to um, context building and this, your idea of cultural humility just jives with me on a really deep level. And, and I feel like that is the kind of outlook that's going to help achieve better health outcomes, but also focus attentions on this like this this thicket of other issues that we've been talking yeah. about as well. I mean, like to be able to, because you can't see the other issues with your doctrinal blinders on, blinders on, you know, like you have to be humble enough to immerse yourself in a context and learn from it. And so I, I find that just really heartening to hear that that is so central to your approach, you know? Yes, thank you so much. I can't, I couldn't do this work otherwise. It's so hard to be a person that doesn't recognize and enjoy community work that I just, I, if I didn't have the heart for it or if I started to get desensitized or disillusioned, if you will, um, I would find something else to do with my time because I really, you have to, I, I say community-based work is like, making meatballs, right? Like you have to like mix the onions and the seasoning and like get in there with your hands and put the eggs in. Like that's how I look at community-based work. You can't just like take the meat out of the package and start cooking. It's going to, there's not going to be any taste to it, but to get really good meatballs, you got to like season it and like get in there with your hands. That's how I approach my work. I have to do everything at 110% because (laughs) I, I just feel like that's, my gift for being on this earth, like, what was I brought here for, you know? what What is my purpose if not to, like, change lives? So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that you feel like that because I wouldn't do it otherwise. I could not do it if it wasn't 110% in my spirit. Well, to get good work done, get your hands dirty. I think we've yeah. got a tagline. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's yeah. it. We have a tagline, and we already had a mic drop, so I think we can we can wrap this up with this shoot. Yes, thank you guys for this opportunity. It just it feels good to be able to unpack in this way um, with people that get it, and also just be able to I don't know motivate other people that are going to listen to it. So I just I thank you for the opportunity because the work is hard. I mean, we're talking about it, but it is hard work. It's soul work, and. It's it's difficult if you don't have these types of outlets or you don't have people that you can talk to that get it. So I thank you for that. That's all for this episode. To learn more about Indidi Amuta, visit our site, fusa.com slash podcast. That's F as in Frankenfurter, two O's, two S's, and A as in apple pie, dot com slash podcast. See you next time on FusaPod a podcast about creativity, community, and the things that matter. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time. I'm Lee Sean Hall. FusaPod.